Well, it's wonderful to be in the room. I haven't spoke for, uh, in public like this for uh, about a year, so um, I don't know if I remember how to do it. Uh, one of the, the big changes, before I start, one of the big changes that we're making in the Diocese of St. Anthony here at Sanctuary Church, which is the cathedral seat of the diocese, is that we believe that she needs to have her own rector. And uh, so I have been functioning as that for the past couple of years, but we felt it good to the Holy Spirit and to us that Father Paul stepped into that role post-COVID. And he has done an amazing job over the last year steering this community through this COVID crisis. So even though we're going to be here, um, we are going to be making him take in the role as rector of sanctuary starting March 28th. So uh, we'll be doing an installation service that morning, and uh, please plan to come. Uh, He and Lissa will serve this community well and have a longer arc of career than either Father Brent, myself, or Reverend Janice do. (laughs) So it's good for you. All right, let's do some preaching. So over the past hundreds of thousands of years, or, or hundreds of thousands of years ago, when human beings were developing some kind of process and were evolving in some kind of process, God was directing that. And the human race comes to a place of self-awareness and of consciousness of God. And we come to this narrative in Genesis. I think that's where the Genesis narrative picks up. Somewhere along this path, this serpent, which we don't know literal or what exactly is going on, the serpent, it says in Genesis 3, was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And the serpent says, you will certainly not die. For God knows that when you eat of this tree, this one that's forbidden, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, which means you'll know both good and evil within yourself. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining that internal wisdom, she took it and ate. She gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate And then both of their eyes were opened. Now the story goes on to show that these individuals who followed the tempter's nudge began to choose themselves what was good and what was evil. In other words, they no longer relied on God for such kind of knowing. This is what is at the heart of what our tradition, the Christian tradition, calls the fall. Human beings get all mixed up about who plays the role of God. What's at play here is basically a move to be independent from God. Remember, the serpent says, for God knows when you eat of this, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If we are like God or the same as God, we do not need God. Up to this moment in history, It appears that right and wrong for the human race was inside God and not inside human beings. But they wanted it to be inside themselves. They wanted to self-direct, to not be under the direction of an other, a God. I think this still haunts us. We still have this 
almost insatiable urge to be self-determined. In fact, we generally think of that in the West as freedom. Crudely stated, if God exists in our way of economy of thinking, well, then God must exist to help me, not to direct me. That would be the loss of precious freedom. Now, in our first reading today from the Old Testament in the lectionary, we hear what's called the Decalogue, these 10 commands of God. And it starts by God saying, I am the Lord your God. And then he iterates these commands. One, you shall not have other gods before me. Two, you shall not let the name of the Lord God mean nothing to you. You must not let it be vain to you. Three, remember to worship. Remember to Sabbath. Four, honor your mother and your father. Five, do not murder. Six, do not commit adultery. Seven, do not try to take what has not been given. Do not steal. Eight, do not lie or bear false witnesses about those, a witness against those who are around you. Nine, do not covet your neighbor's spouse. Ten, do not covet your neighbor's goods. These are the commands outside of ourselves that God gives to us. In the New Testament, Jesus sums up those commands and basically says, love God and love neighbor. If you do that, you won't want to lie or covet or steal or whatever, right? Because you're loving them as you love and want to be loved yourself. Loving God, as Jesus commands, is hard because we don't see God. We just see hints creation, the good that we see in the world, the, uh, the love, beauty, the sense of justice, all these things are like fingerprints of God. And we're called to love God who is unseen and in a sense unknowable but partially knowable. And, and it's difficult and it requires, we know from scripture, grace, which is God empowering us to be able to do it. But then there's this business of loving neighbor <laughs> who we do know. Uh, it, it's really hard unless they are exactly like us. <laughs> or if they're committed to doing all we expect from them, then it's easy to love them, right? <laughs> but we're called to love. Romans says, or Paul says in Romans 13, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be is summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm, he says to a neighbor. Therefore, love fulfills these commands. Let me interject two critical points here that we don't have time to really explore, but just one is God is not like the clockmaker who tucks directions into the box of the clock and ships them, and then we pull them out and we try to figure out, you know, how to run the thing. Uh, God doesn't, the Bible isn't a record of old words. The Bible is a living book that carries the voice, now voice of God. It's not a God who's absent. It's a God who's present as we hear the commands. And then secondly, there is way too much brokenness in the human race uh, for us to be able to pull off the kind of obedience that God asks of us. And this is another why of grace. God is a God who, if he demands $100 from you, uh, he'll slip the $100 into your pocket by the Spirit. 
<laughs> so that whatever has been commanded, you've been empowered to do. So this whole thing of faith, is it's both human and divine. It's not just divine, and it's not just human. It's this odd mixture that we have to try to figure out how to flow in, which makes faith a tad awkward, but a wonderful journey. So we're to hear these commands again and again. And we're to hear the living voice of God again and again. Not that our whole relationship with God is to be based on law. That's not the point. But by hearing and following these laws, we remember that the knowledge of good and evil is not what we make up. We recognize that we are the creatures who need the creator. Eventually, we discover through the biblical narrative that this whole concept of the, uh, of the salvation of the human soul is inextricably wrapped up in the notion of the lordship of the divine. That somehow we are saying, I'm not God. I'm not like God in a way that I don't need God. I never graduate from needing God. I will always need God. And through faith, somehow we begin to engage with these commands and we follow these commands. And it includes this idea of obedience. And that is still deeply problematic for the modern, particularly those of us in the West. To think that direction for our lives comes from God and not just from our own conscience and our own choice, it opens up a whole world of disruption. We don't get to just trust ourselves and just do what we're comfortable with, right? We have to pause. We're called to pause and recollect. What would Jesus do? What would God have me do? What is, God, what is God's want in this moment and, and that's often very disrupting to the me in me. This is what we see in our gospel reading today. Here's Jesus cleansing the temple. It's the second vignette in John's narrative. And it shows Jesus disrupting what was totally acceptable. It was totally normative for them. It was what they expected, these people selling the stuff and having all the animals in there and and Jesus comes in and he disrupts what we, the status quo. <laughs> Jesus upends the business of the sellers and the money changers and those who were shopping their wares. In effect, Jesus is inciting a riot. They're just freaking out, man. Throwing money. You can imagine if somebody threw all your money and coins all over the ground, you'd be on the ground gathering and scrambling. And the people don't know what to do with it. Jesus was the healer. Jesus is the forgiver, the welcomer, the one who sacrificed for all. The love of God in flesh, that was Jesus, but he was also a giver of commands. The one who pointed to our need to be transformed, to be better human beings, and he was willing to disrupt and interrupt what was normative. What if God's just like that? What if faith isn't settling, but getting on some kind of disruptive path? <laughs> 
What this means is if you and I are going to follow Jesus, we have to be open to getting our lives disrupted. That's what's at the core of transformation is disruption. I think we all long to be better, but being better is not easy. And it's not a thing that just happens in a moment. (laughs) That'd be awesome if we could throw some oil on you at the altar and shazam, it's a done deal. Who wouldn't like that, right? But it's not that. It's arduous and it's kind of the way of the cross. It's a way of death. I never get angry at people who drop out of the faith. This is not a path that's simple. It's not a path that's easy. If it is, you've reduced it to something it isn't. The way of the cross is the way of deep pain. The way of the cross is a way that transcends living for yourself and your own perceived needs. It's a place where me doesn't come first and where you are not just committed to scratching your own itches. It's a pausing life because it often pauses to consider God's way and the good of the other before it acts. This is faith. Each of us lives with a high degree of illusion and uh, blindness about our lives. In fact, the more I am reflective, the worse I see I am. But we have to recognize those things if we're ever going to grow. You have to become suspicious of yourself. Knowing you're loved why you're not so good is wonderful. Knowing you're accepted when you act like a toad is glorious. But you have to be suspicious of yourself. I love the text in 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love that because what it's saying is whatever you know and confess, God will forgive you, but then he'll forgive all the stuff you don't know. Which is to say, You're bad. But that's okay. God's bigger than you're bad. And his love is not based on your performance. But that being said, transformation causes us to take note of our own biases and our addictive preoccupations that we usually refuse to pay attention to. And and because all of us play games, And we cultivate our prejudices and we carry these unredeemed visions of the world. Transformation is about facing those biases and seeing what we do not see. It's daring to say, search me, oh God, and show me those places that are not right. And then lead me in the everlasting way. This is where we become something more. It's when we face what we have not yet Faced, And this demands inner work so we can catch what's beyond our own biases to something transcendent, but it's also something that's threatening. In his book, Why Don't They Get It?, Brian McLaren talks about the difficulty that we have in overcoming our own personal biases. He speaks of the presence in each of us of a confirmation bias where he says this is where we judge new ideas based on how well they fit in with and confirm our old ideas, our old information, 
our own trusted authorities. We fear learning. Then he says, points out this idea of, of complexity bias, where our brains prefer simple falsehood to any kind of complex truth. So we try to reduce things, even in Christianity. I think that a lot of us want Christianity, that, a kind of Christianity that we can master in six months with, with no complexity, no nuance, no paradox, no mystery, no, no kind of contradiction. We refuse those things. You know, we, do, we, we want things to be as simple as people go to heaven or hell based on whether they said that prayer. Instead of realizing, maybe it's more complex than that. Maybe Jesus, when he says, not everyone who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, in other words, they prayed the prayer, shall not enter the kingdom of God, but only those that do the will of God. Well, Jesus, why are you messing up our schema? Or we have community bias, he says, where it's almost impossible for us to see what our community that we're part of does not see or can't see, or won't see. Then we have the complementarity bias. This is where if you're hostile to my ideas, that's cool, I'll be hostile to yours. Just read some posts. He cites many more, but the last one I wanted to share was, he says we all have a conspiracy bias on some level, which means, particularly in a polarized culture, that this is where when we're under stress or shame or our brains, you know, are, are feeling pressure, we tend to be attracted to stories that relieve us, that exonerate us, that somehow portray us as the innocent victims of some sort of malicious conspiracies that are going on. Here's the point. It's hard to be transformed because transformation re- requires a change of thinking. This is the why behind the rhythms of prayer that we engage in. And gatherings like this, where we come to the word of God. Why? We're coming to be disrupted. We're coming for our tables to be thrown over, our coins to be scattered that we so trust in. And all the oxen and the sheep and the whatever that we're counting on, their blood covering us gets scattered and we're standing there. What are we gonna do now? We come again and again and again to these spiritual disciplines and the work that God does in our lives is a work of disruption. This is what Lent is supposed to be about. We're supposed to go into the wilderness to hear from God and to examine what it is we think and why we think that way and what it is we do and why we do those things. The wilderness is the place where we're tested, where we're forced to confront uncomfortable truths about our true selves. So let me ask you this morning, in the midst of Lent, the most wonderful and horrible time of the year, what are the things God may be wanting to confront in you? What do you not want to be confronted about? What tables in your life is Jesus trying to throw over? At the end of the day, the commands lead us to love. Loving God, loving people. And love is the road of sacrifice, not control. Yet, 
There's freedom there, and there's joy there, but the cross comes before resurrection. Golgotha comes before Easter. Obeying the law of love is not living the life of a conqueror. It's not living the life of being in charge. This, this kind of behavior doesn't image masculine power, not this kind of love we're called to do. It's more of a feminine image of power, a maternal kind of image. We see it modeled in Jesus' life in Luke 13 where he looks at Jerusalem, these folks who have been so rebellious to the prophets and so rebellious to God's voice and rejecting of Jesus. And it says, Jerusalem, Jesus says, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who, sent, who are sent to it. And remember, these are the ones that murder him in just a few days. How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. He didn't say, how often have I longed to, to conquer you, to get even for how bad you are. He says instead, I just want to gather you, your children together like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you're not, you're not willing. I mean, it's so striking that God, the God of such power who's come in the flesh, would be willing to make himself known to us as a hen, a female chicken. <laughs> God in Christ is like a mother hen who's willing to open her arms, to expose herself, vulnerable to attack, vulnerable to re rejection, because she is covering those she loves, not defending herself. There's no coercion here. This, this text in Luke is the same text where Jesus is told that, that King Herod is a fox and that he was out looking to kill him. Even in the face of imminent danger, God in Christ focuses on us and leaves himself completely exposed, utterly vulnerable. Barbara Brown Taylor puts it so beautifully about this text. She writes this. Jesus won't be king of the jungle in this or any other story. What he will be is a mother hen who stands between the chicks and those who mean to do them harm. She has no fangs, no claws, no ripping muscles. All she has is her willingness to shield her babies with her own body. If the fox wants them, he will have to kill her first, which he does, as it turns out. He slides up on her one night in the yard while all the babies are asleep, and when her cry wakens them, they scatter. She dies the next day with, where both foxes and chickens can see her, wings spread, breast exposed, without a single chick under beneath her feathers. It breaks her heart, but it does not change a thing. If you mean what you say, then this is how you stand. In Lent, we listen for God's voice again and again. We are to obey, but that has the primary meaning of keeping the posture that God shows us in the story of the hen. 
God is ever moving towards us with this ever vulnerable love. If we're gonna follow Jesus, we must love others the same way. We may have commands that we have to obey. We may have commands that we have to convey to others, but we must live out those commands and communicate those commands absolutely wrapped in love with no coercion, no manipulation. And we must choose to love those baby chickens, even if those are the very chicks who refuse to be gathered under our wings. We're just in for the world. It means taking the risk to love the way God loves. And so as we move to the table this morning, remember this kind of love, this kind of life that receives commands, that receives the willingness to be put forth sacrificially in love. Paul says in our text, one of the lectionary texts that we didn't read this morning in 1 Corinthians, he said, this is the kind of wisdom of God that looks really foolish. It looks stupid. It's true. I mean, this whole message, refusing to make up our own right and wrong, uh, obedience to some unseen being, the way of the cross, the vulnerability of loving, this seems like foolishness. That's why you should never get mad at people who don't buy it. But it is the way of Jesus.